From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. It's something we've all noticed. The victims and perpetrators of violence in the city of Philadelphia seem to be getting younger and younger. Richie Schultz of the Lutheran Settlement House in Philadelphia and Gabriel Jackson with the Youth Art and Self-Empowerment Project join us for a panel discussion on youth violence. If we're going to talk about teen dating violence, if we're going to be talking about gun violence, we also need to be talking about all of the other forms of violence within how our society is structured. Charity Howard sits down with a champion for transgender rights. She shares her horrific story, which is helping in the fight for change. In Philadelphia, there really isn't like a hate crimes charge. There is something called ethnic intimidation. All that's ahead on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Well, we've been hearing a lot about violence throughout the city of Philadelphia and surrounding areas. And one of the things that we've been noticing is the age of those involved with the violence. We've got teenagers as young as 13 involved in everything from gun violence to dating violence. With me today are two people who will be able to shed some light on some of the issues regarding youth and violence in this city. Richie Schultz is Community Education Supervisor at Lutheran Settlement House in Philadelphia. It's a nonprofit organization committed to serving kids, adults, and families living in Philadelphia. Also with us is Gabby Jackson, who works with youth who've been impacted by the carceral system, and she's organizing and advocacy director of the Youth Art and Self-Empowerment Project and uh, they are building a youth-led movement to end the practice of trying to uh, incarcerate young people as adults and create a world without youth incarceration. Welcome, both of you, to the program. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Let's first talk about some of the work that you do uh, with your respective organizations. Uh, Why don't you tell me the work that you do, Richie, at Lutheran Settlement House? So I am our community education supervisor within our bilingual domestic violence agency, And we offer tons of different services for survivors of domestic violence. I'm here today to specifically talk about our violence prevention program, Students Talking About Relationships, Mm -hmm. which we refer to as STAR. Um, STAR is our teen dating violence uh, program. So we go into schools and offer uh, workshops for teens on recognizing the signs of dating violence, um, how to support friends that are experiencing dating violence, conflict resolution skills, as well as how to build healthy relationships mm-hmm. um, in their lives. And that extends beyond just intimate relationships, but as well as with friends, with your family members, um, and yeah, how to build a culture of care and uh, relationships free of violence. Yeah, okay. Gabby, tell me more about the Youth Art and Self-Empowerment Project. Hi, um, so the Youth Art Self-Empowerment Project is a youth-led movement in Philadelphia that basically focuses around working with youth who's been impacted by the carceral system, um, we have a variety of programs. Um, one that I specifically manage and supervise is our Hub Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And our Hub Fellowship is a program offered to like youth up to age 25 that's been impacted by the carceral system or either they've supported a loved one that was very close to them that's been incarcerated. And so this program is basically a program where we offer youth like a fellowship position that's paid and then they come in and learn different skills around transformative and restorative justice like liberation movement. Um, self-care and personal development skills, as well as um, also facilitating our youth hub, which is like 
a community space where a lot of folks in Philly or youth who in Philly who have charges go through their court process. And we offer like community support around like court support or it can be like mitigation support um, with social bio videos. We also offer resources for families because of course like if a family's in a situation like it's a lot of things that come up. So it might be like housing, it might be like education wise or even like career wise for financial um, resources. And then one major thing that's also really important is our Healing Futures program. So that's our diversion program in Philly where we actually get cases from um, the DA's office and we actually go through a restorative justice process with youth in order for them not to get charges, but kind of to create that healing where they actually can come in contact with the person that they harmed and have like a restorative circle and talk about it and actually come up with a restorative plan and kind of go through that transformative process in their life. Okay. We're not going to have one answer to solve all problems. Okay, this is going to be, and this has been an ongoing conversation um, because violence in the city, especially with regards to youth, is a complicated issue. It goes back to so many different things. What are some of the things or trends that you think are feeding this? I think when we're talking about, especially in regards to like the youth or just like our system in general, like the level of equality that comes about where some youth do not get the amount of resources that's needed from the proper beginning or families don't get the amount of resources that's needed. You said some youth. What what youth are you talking about specifically? Um, Youth that's been impacted by a carceral system or sure. just in general, like um, youth that haven't even been impacted by the carceral system or just like the violence of this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Realistically, a lot of like black and brown youth specifically sure. or youth of color um, where they face like issues where they're limited resources, they're limited like for housing, food resources, and there's a lot of inequalities that exist in society, which creates more trauma, yeah. um, which leads to youth or other people having to possibly do actions of harm in order to gain that equality or that power back for themselves. Also, like we live in a society where a lot of norms of violence is accepted, and um, we have to sometimes like review that and evaluate that to say like, okay, how do we break these norms? And I think definitely like the youth that I'm working with are going through that process, Mm -hmm. as well as the youth in the city that have probably impacted or been a person who caused harm, which I believe we all actually have caused harm in some way in our lives. Um, So like we go through that process of like breaking those norms to lead to like a healing or healing our society. Richie, what would you say? Yeah, I would echo a lot of what Gabby's been offering. Harvard epidemiologists that have studied violence all over the world have found that the largest correlation for the amount of violence in a society is tied to uh, the fancy word is its Gini coefficient. Say that one more time. So a Gini coefficient is just a fancy economic term to talk about the income inequality within a society, regardless of its GDP. So it doesn't matter if it's like a very rich country or a very poor country. It's about the amount of relational poverty or the amount of income inequality within a society that is the biggest predictor of violence. And this makes a lot of sense because if there is power over, if there is inequality structured within our institutions, within our society, that will obviously get replicated within our interpersonal relationships. Mm. So if we're going to talk about teen dating violence, if we're going to be talking about gun violence, we also need to be talking about all of the other forms of violence within how our society is structured. Gentrification is a teen dating violence issue. Really? Right. And I mean, this comes up in our workshops. You know, we can't talk to teens about teen dating violence without talking about the ways in which they're experiencing violence within their communities. We talk about gentrification in our teen dating violence workshops. We talk about gun violence in our teen dating violence workshops. We talk about the ways in which teens can explore 
creating change within their communities to build more healthy and vibrant communities because abuse doesn't happen within a vacuum. Right, 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 absolutely. Gabby, you spoke about resources, and I often hear this, any gun violence forum I attend, anytime we're talking about youth and violence or violence in general, uh, we're hearing about we need more rec centers, we need things to do for the kids after school, um, but some of these issues are meeting them right in these so-called safe spaces. They're rec centers. There are things to do after school in some places, and they're met by violence right there. Mm-hmm. So then we threw up our hands and go, well, then what now? What other resources could the community offer to try to chip away at what's happening? Um, For me, I'm like an advocate for youth voices being heard. Yeah. Um, And I think a lot of times when we talk about like creating alternatives for youth that's been impacted by the carceral system, a lot of adults coming together to be like, let's create these alternatives. Right. And then like not really listening to like the youth voices that are actually experiencing why they probably created this harm and what's needed for them. Okay. And I think I'm also a big advocate for restorative justice, um, which is really big around like healing our communities and healing like the harm that we caused. And I think when we're looking at identifying like what are alternatives, what are resources that can be helpful or useful, or how can we like create resources that also don't create more trauma or like youth will or youth or anybody impacted by the carceral system um, won't come in contact with any more trauma while going through these resources or these other alternatives. I believe that looking into understanding that when we create these alternatives that allowing youth voices to be heard to say like these are the things that we need in order for us to create healing within ourselves. I think that is important. Um, I mean, these are the people that are in this every day. They understand some of the struggles that they're going through and what better way to try to chip away at it than to give them more of a voice? So that is definitely uh, something that could help. But um, another reoccurring theme that I'm hearing is trauma, trauma, trauma. And of course, we understand the old saying that hurt people hurt people. So there is this cycle that is just continuing. And I'm assuming that the, the, a lot of the kids that are involved in this obviously experience some kind of trauma in their life and it just continues and then we have more victims. So we need to actually work through the trauma at a young age. Mm-hmm. So that is something that can help. Is that something that you you advocate for, Richie? Yeah, so currently our incredible teen dating violence specialist has a caseload of teen survivors or teens that are experiencing dating violence mm-hmm. that she sees. And uh, one of the things that we know from doing uh, work around teen violence uh, over the last 10 years is that it needs to have a holistic approach. So part of what is happening currently at Lutheran Settlement House is we've gotten funding to work with our incredible friends at CHOP to expand our services and have a more holistic approach to what violence prevention looks like within schools and communities. And a lot of research has shown that fundamental to teen violence prevention is increasing counseling and therapy services. Mm -hmm. So a part of our work with CHOP is exploring how to actually build out more counseling services for teens that are experiencing dating violence or who have been impacted by trauma. Related to that, our programming, as it's expanding over the next few years with this uh, multi-year grant that we've gotten, is going to be uh, working with teens over the summer to train them in a violence prevention curriculum, as well as build their skills around workshop facilitation, where then they will go back into their schools and actually um, facilitate this STAR program, the students talking about relationships, violence prevention, healthy relationship curriculum, for other students within their school. Mm. And then in the spring, those students um, within those schools that have been trained in this curriculum now will be um, 
support it to build out projects within their school, within their communities, lives into their leadership to create their own solutions to contending with violence, contending with trauma, contending with all of these things. And through that whole entire process, we'll also be bringing in school counselors, we'll be bringing in teachers, we'll be working with parents to have a whole entire community-based approach and community and culturally specific violence prevention strategies that we're not even sure what they look like yet because they haven't been developed. Mm -hmm. But we believe in the leadership of youth to be able to come up with those strategies themselves. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Gabby, talk a little bit about how uh, youth uh, are dealt with when a crime is committed, when a violent crime is committed, because we're talking about trauma and the repeating of cycles. Uh, it's your contention that locking them up is not mm-hmm. the solution. I mean, youth are charged every day here in Philadelphia. Currently, we have this law, direct file, where a youth as young as 10 years old can be charged as an adult in the state of Pennsylvania, which means if a youth is 10 years old and they happen to create or cause a violent crime, they can be sent to an adult prison and be held there. I think sometimes with our criminal justice system, we forget that accountability is a big piece. So when someone creates harm, but sometimes when we do enter or a youth is charged with a certain crime, the focus is around punishment more Mm -hmm. so than understanding that this person's a human being and they also did create a crime and create harm and that accountability should be in that process. Um, And I think that's the missing piece or that bridging the gap to say like, hey, accountability isn't punishment. Accountability is actually doing the work (laughs) because sometimes like the criminal justice system is quick to just be like, I'm punishing, I'm punishing. Well, it's called the correctional system. Is it not supposed to help actually, you know, better People, so, you know, the youth, so that when they come out, they're better than when they went in. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't sound like it's actual correction. You're saying it's more punishment than anything else. Most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. Okay. Could I? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, There's a distinction between crime and harm. Right. So many things that we criminalize don't actually cause harm in communities. And so many forms of harm that happen. So much of abuse, domestic violence is actually legal. So much of survival is actually illegal, which is why we're seeing increasing rates of survivors actually being criminalized for defending themselves, particularly black and brown survivors, black and brown women. So a lot of the ways in which we've looked to the criminal justice system to keep ourselves safe have actually, those well-intentioned laws have created tentacles that have actually harmed and trapped and incarcerated uh, the most vulnerable people in our society. You said said that some of the domestic violence uh, that happens is actually legal. Did, did I hear that right? Yeah. Like, like what? If you can give me an example. Mm-hmm. So domestic violence is fundamentally about someone using power and control over another person to shrink their agency. Right. There are so many ways in which you can do that um, that are not illegal. I can look at your phone. Um, I can verbally mm-hmm. harass you. I can go to your work and just like cause problems there. There are so many different sorts of ways that power and control that can get enacted that are legal. And then survivors and doing all the sorts of things that survivors might need to do in order to um, survive. And if we're not able to actually talk about the reality of all of that, that ends up being one of the most powerful ways in which abusers are able to then be able to continue to enact their power and control. Mm -hmm. Because then they get to say to a survivor, you're no better than me. Right. You did this bad thing as well. Right, right. 
So much of this uh, is like we were saying, we've been saying throughout the show are, you know, cycles continuing. And when it comes to youth dating violence, they haven't seen a healthy relationship is what I'm assuming that they are not seeing what a healthy relationship looks like. Because if they're seeing a toxic relationship, they are probably going to repeat that pattern and so on and so forth. So what are some of the signs when it comes to teen violence that parents um, and even kids, young women, even young men should look for when they're in a relationship? I think for parents, some signs might be like change in behavior. Like, okay, like, why is my child changing their behavior? Like, what's kind of going on for them to change their behavior or coming home with different marks on their body, you know? Mm. Um, also, like, my child played sports and loved sports, but they're losing interest in things that they love, they had a passion for. Um, I think in regards to teenagers, one thing that I think I love about working with youth is that even though they might not identify it, but they can identify when something feels uncomfortable. They might say, like, hey, I'm going home to think about this person just called me out my name. Right. And that made me feel uncomfortable, but... I'm in a relationship, so how do I deal with this? Like, there's a lot of, like, kind of different red flags to be like, these actions that are happening, this is not normal for me. Like, this is taking me out of my comfort zone. So maybe there's something that I need to identify in my relationship Mm -hmm. that might be abuse. And they might not have the language for it. And I also, teens are really smart. Now, a teen that comes from a home where there's domestic violence and they're witnessing it growing up uh, the whole time, you know, this is something that they may carry with them, as I said before, into another relationship. How can they kind of work through that? That's part of our counseling program is sort of exploring in a non-judgmental, open and empowering way right. what they learned about what relationships have looked like in the past and then supporting them to explore what they actually want in the relationships. Um, and we do that in ways that are really about supporting Um, the building up of their agency, especially when it's been taken away. One of the things that can happen when we go through, uh, you know, the different sorts of red flags that Gabby has already named, when we Mm -hmm. see an increasing social isolation among survivors, whether they're teens or adults, is someone will see those flags and then be like, okay, you need to go do this thing right now. You are experiencing abuse. And that ends up also just being another really unhelpful thing that we've seen as well. A lot of the times people will think that safety is the first thing that we need to prioritize and then we'll build up their self-determination later. We have found time and time again that that is actually not the most useful, effective, or empowering way to support any survivor. Hmm. Self-determination is the process that leads to safety over time. That's the end goal. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if the internet is really playing a role in this and making it easier for people to have power over another one or, you know, threats or things of that nature, comparing relationships. Is, is this a problem? Because this is something I didn't grow up with. <laughs> so this is a whole new dynamic that I'm wondering if it's causing additional issues and problems. I definitely do feel like media plays a really, really strong in creating norms where people can think that things are okay. I think media can like I won't say influence. I will never say that. But seeing it consistently can be a thing where it's like, okay, like this is something that might be the norm now when it's not the norm. But I don't think it's the cause. There are so many ways in which social media, media can increase, you know, rates of depression, suicidality within teens. And also I just see social media as a tool that can be used either to perpetuate violence or to potentially create more safety. And I get concerned sometimes when people use media as a way to pathologize youth 
as more vulnerable than previous generations because of media. Well, as I said, this is definitely a multi-pronged conversation, uh, a conversation that we can have ongoing throughout the year and years, actually, uh, to, to continue this. Um, how can we learn more about the work of Lutheran Settlement House? We have a website, lutheransettlement.org. We're always looking for more resources if folks are interested in supporting our work. If folks are also interested in getting involved, there are ways to get connected to volunteer opportunities through our website. I would be remiss without not also sharing that for anyone who is experiencing domestic violence or you know is surviving or supporting a friend who is surviving violence in their life, there is a 24-hour free and confidential hotline, the Philadelphia Domestic Violence Resource Line, that is sort of the main portal into all sorts of different counseling, educational, other services that are here in Philadelphia and beyond for survivors. So the Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-866-723-3014. And once again, that is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is free and confidential. All right, 1-866-723-3014. Thank you for that. And Gabby, how can we learn more about the Youth Art and Self-Empowerment Program? Um, You can check us out on our website at yasproject.com. So Y-A-S-P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot com and on our Instagram as well as Yes Philly. Richie Schultz, Gabby Jackson, thank you so much for joining us today and shedding some light on this topic. And we can continue to have this conversation, but the conversation is important that we at least start the conversation so we can work toward healing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. Kendall Stevens is a trans woman and advocate for social change. She was brutally attacked almost three years ago, and her story led to activism. And that activism is helping to make changes here in Philadelphia for the LGBTQIA community. Just recently, a woman pleaded guilty to aggravated assault, and she was also convicted of hate crimes for the attack on Stevens. It's considered a step forward because Pennsylvania does not have a law that specifically protects LGBTQ plus people from bias crimes. She shares her story with Sharaday Howard. We must warn you, it is disturbing and at times quite graphic. Please tell us what happened on August 24th of 2020. In the beginning, I was targeted. I was targeted by a mob of angry transphobes um, who forced their way into my home and beat me senseless. Uh, they did this in, in wild aggression, and my goddaughters were there. They, you know, twelve um, and and sixteen at the time, witnessing what they believed to be my murder, and terrified. I was terrified. I thought I was going to die, and I survived. And sadly, because I am a black trans person living in the hood, living in an urban enclave that is, you know, um, at risk, I had to talk with my family to decide if I was even going to call 911. So that's not even an issue for so many other people, so many other families, but you had to stop and not only think about your safety with one regard, you had to think about it full circle. Well, yeah, in in my neighborhood, uh, no snitching culture is real. And if you call the cops and you snitch, that elevates the level of risk that you're going to fall into. So not only, you know, um, was I not protected and served when the responding officers came who notified me that 
this was a private complaint and I should go downtown and file a private complaint. They left me there, um, you know, at the mercy of my attackers who I overheard contemplating on what they were going to do next to me. So zero protection. Zero protection. I was served up and not protected. And throughout this, you know, engagement, here I am now, I'm at the precinct trying to establish some sense of justice. And I was laughed out the precinct. Even when I had city officials come down to advocate on my behalf, still no justice. I was told I was a civilian and that I needed to follow the advice of the responding officers and go downtown and file a private complaint. Even though I was bleeding out of my nose and my mouth and my head, broken bones, I had to advocate for two hours before I even went to triage. And when I got to triage, the nurse says, well, where's the detective? I said, well, there is no detective. I have to go downtown after I'm done here. She says, no, you won't. I'm calling 911. Now, if someone finally steps up, yes. you're being your own advocate and someone finally decides to be an ally. Yes. What was that like? To me, that was, in that moment, very liberating because I should not have had to advocate on my own behalf as a victim. I was treated as a perpetrator. But I was the one that was attacked. And I was put at such a great risk, psychologically, emotionally. My spirit was broken. I had no more fight in me by the time I got to the hospital. And for someone to take on that burden and say, you know, you've been through enough. We got you from here. That really restored my faith in humanity. I said, okay, well, I see everyone is not seeing me as an unworthy minority. People are seeing me as a human being that needs help and protection. And I was happy to have received it at some point during this ordeal. So now the next stage. Now what happens for me? Where's the justice? And how did that play out? Well, the interesting thing was, the most heartbreaking thing was after I was attacked, Mm I didn't know where the attackers were. All of a sudden, I see a Facebook post with members of my own community platforming my attacker's story while she sat there, misgendered me, called me a man, and created this fantastical story that was so untrue and tried to place herself as a victim and me as the perpetrator. And when this happened, I was in a state of shock. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe this happened. But they did me a favor because now I know exactly who you are. I know your name. And I took this to the detectives and they were able to locate her and hold her accountable for what she did. And now that gave you the tools you needed to take that next step. That's right. It was a a hard journey at first. Um, It was a a bitter pill to swallow. I uh, tried to commit suicide. Um, I was at such a low point because I fought for my community for so many years. And to have these same members who I trusted, I thought were family, you know, turn on me, uh, betray me um, for clout, for clicks and views, you know, for their own selfish agendas. You know, that was the most painful thing. That was more painful than the attack. So not only a matter of when is it my turn, when am I going to be protected, but now it's like you look around you and you don't even know who to trust. You have absolutely no support system. Right. So I ended up getting a resilience award. Um, 
you know, from FSP against bullying, who honored my resilience and honored my durability during all of this um, and my, my ability to continue to rise and thrive. I've never seen anything like it, quite honestly, personally or professionally. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I think that comes from uh, a, a long life of hardship and this reservoir of resilience that I have built up over time that gives me information on how to move forward. So this resolution, what just happened and why is this so important? They were finally able to apply the hate crimes ordinance 10-2200 summary charge for this perpetrator. It was the first time we were able to actually apply this because in Philadelphia, there really isn't like a hate crimes charge. There is something called ethnic intimidation, but... Through the efforts of people in our community who fought to have the ordinance amended, to have this hate crime summary applied in the event of a hate crime attack or violent attack, we're able to now do this. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is groundbreaking. And I hope that this can be a springboard for greater protections in the Commonwealth. We need to have our hate crime statute include LGBTQ plus identified people as a protected class. It has to happen. And I remember after my attack, I was asked to give testimony at the Senate Majority Policy Committee hearing. And there was no traction after. There was a lot of false promises. But I hope now that we have a Democrat-controlled House here in Pennsylvania that we can push through some of these very pro-LGBTQ protective laws so that we can have some sense of security and safety and not have to live in this state of fear the way that we have been for so long. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. Be well.